I mean, it's that old maxim. I mean, that if, if your career is going well, your private life is lousy and vice versa. And the, the fact is that I had every reason to be in heaven that night because it was so brilliant. The opening night was so brilliant. It was so great for me. You so, you, you know, you, you gird yourself for that, that opening night moment of, you know, that high. And then you've got to fall after that. There's got to be a terrible thump. Any movie buff will recognize that as the voice of Lauren Bacall, one of the 20th century's greatest actors, a legend of the silver screen and Broadway stage for more than 70 years. Bacall, whose sultry glance earned her the nickname The Look, had made her film debut at the age of 18. Stardom quickly followed. My dad, David Frost, sat down with Bacall for two extended interviews, three decades apart in 1971 and 2000, that led to fascinating revelations and insights into her life stories. The interviews covered the surprising origins of her famous look. I was terribly nervous uh, just being in front of a camera. I, became, I came to be called the look because out of, out of sheer total hysteria, her first impressions working with Humphrey Bogart. Bogie was not one of my favorite actors. I admired him as an actor, but he was not a hero of mine. And Hollywood's golden age. Beverly Hills was so attractive, I cannot tell you. No glass and brass. Old buildings that have since been torn down, of course. All the charm of the place. My name is Wilfred Frost, and this is season two of The Frost Tapes. In this episode, the life of one of the entertainment industry's all-time greats, Lauren Bacall. My feeling that night was, think of the part, think of what you're doing, and just try, if you can, to forget that your entire life depends upon this moment. What's your first memory? Um, my very first memory is very vague, it turns out. <laughs> I really don't know. I remember I went to dancing school very when I was, young. yes, when I was two or three. What did you dance? I studied with Ruth St. Dennis. Is that, that's possible, isn't it? Yes, In, infinitely plausible. Yes and uh, because my original ambition was to dance. And even, the, even at that age, what I guess I showed an aptitude. I don't know how, but I but guess what I does know. one do at the age of two or three? I mean, if you can one, walk, you know, they're pretty thrilled. Yes, walk first, and then you learn to, you know, like this. And today they say one arm up, and you figure if you know the right from the left, you're ahead, you know. And it's, I remember that vaguely. As for vivid recollections, I don't know. I haven't thought, you know, about my early childhood very much. I guess maybe in a way one blocks some of that out. Uh, I don't know really quite why. Bacall had a humble beginning. She was born in the Bronx and grew up in Brooklyn. Her mother, a Jewish immigrant from Romania, her father, a first-generation American with roots in Poland and Belarus. Who had the most influence on you as a child? I mean, your mother, your father? I mean, I did not live with my father from the time I was six years old. And I never saw him again after I was eight. My mother certainly was the most influential person in my life. Uh, and what was great about her 
was that not only was she a very special woman, uh, whom I had a great deal of respect for, but she always, I mean, no one in my family had ever been in the theater and had ever dreamed of doing anything in the professional world, in the entertainment world. Uh, I was the first, and some members of my family thought I was absolutely out of my head. But she didn't. She, she didn't? No, she backed me all the way. She never, never let me down. I mean, she really was extraordinary. She was the kind of woman that she just was with me all the time. And she was a working woman, so it was not easy for her to be with me all the time. Well, what did she do? Did she went she, out to work every day, did she? Yes, she was, uh, she was an executive secretary and a wonderful one. And... Um, She's, uh... Gosh, she had a full-time life with she you. Had a full when she got with me. Can you imagine what a handful I must have been? <laughs> oh, God. Full day and Only child, yeah. So she, she was certainly very influential in my life. And, and did she, she... You think she was all for you going into the... Uh, I know she was. Else. Well, I know she was, because uh, I know that my grandmother, her mother, you know, couldn't understand. She was a very old-fashioned woman coming from the old country, couldn't, couldn't really not conceive of acting or anything in this business, you know. I mean, it's, if it's foreign to you, it's foreign to right. you. Because it was chancy and risky or because it was somewhat disreputable? I think probably somewhat disreputable because chancy and risky I don't think anyone really knew about. I mean, one doesn't really know about that until you're in the middle of it, right? And then it's too late to get out. But, but it, was the all you know. it was the scarlet woman connotation. That I would imagine so, yes. Because, of course, all of the... Uh, I mean, I, I would think that must have been it. I mean, it's very old world kind of thinking. By the age of 12, Bacall already had years of dance training and she was beginning to dabble with modeling too. But most of all, she was enamored with the art of acting and was a huge admirer of the actor Betty Davis, one of the female superstars of early cinema. Betty Davis was in fact at that time your idol, right? I mean, she, she When was... I began? Yes, yes. Yes. Oh, I adored her. She was my... I mean, I wanted to be like Betty Davis. She was, I thought she was a, a wonderful actress, which I still think she is, and a great personality. And she made an extraordinary impression on me as a kid. And I, I, I just, I wanted to see, I, I did see every one of her films, you know, 98 times, and then uh, cut school a few times. Cut school to see Betty Davis yes. movies. That's so, and you went to a hotel or somewhere to try and meet her? Went to a, yes, because she had a, a the secretary and companion, kind of, that was a really good friend of hers, who was a very good friend of my uncle's, and, it, and a meeting was arranged. Can you imagine that woman having to put up with this, <laughs> on a trip to New York, having to put up with this 15-year-old hysteric? And a friend of mine <laughs> and I, she, too, was a, a Davis fan, went up to the Gotham Hotel at... <laughs> We were brought into the room, and Betty Davis was there and was charming, and we were sitting there like this, you know. <laughs> total hysterics, you know, panic, shaking. You know, we had this kind of stilted, hysterical kind of, how do you do, and what do you do, you know. And she was terribly polite and wonderful, and had done it purely as a favor to her, her friend. And it was, it was all kind of, it was half nightmare and half wonderful, except, the, you know, it was wonderful that we got in the room to see her. It would have been terrific if you could have thought of something to say. When you Never can think of anything to say. No. Still can't, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Still tough, though. Through her teenage years, Bacall continued modeling and worked occasionally as an usher at the St. James Theatre on Broadway. 
The opportunity to work in the same building as Broadway's best actors, directors and producers added fuel to her dreams and also gave her a few handy connections. So what did you do when you went out to well, see then I, Fame and Fortune? Well, then I went out. I went, oh, I'm so glad you said that. No, <laughs> Fame and Fortune, both How two very you? questionable commodities. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the, I, the well, I went, no. bit, you did Yes, you well, no, what I, I did was I had, I had to work. I had to get a job. And so I, I modeled down in the garment center. And then during my lunch hour, I used to rush up to Broadway and get a, a paper that was called the Act, Actor's Cue, which was sold for five cents. And they would give you all the, the listings of casting and where to go. You know, and I was running around to offices trying to get jobs, trying to get interviews, trying to get auditions, anything. And um, it was kind of hopeless for a long time. Anyway, I, I finally got a part in a walk, as a walk-on in a show on Broadway that was produced by Roland Brown called Johnny 2 by 4 And it was about the speakeasy days. And... I called it an outstanding walk-on, of course, being a smart 16 years old, because I thought, well, I make an entrance. Not that anyone noticed but me, I make an entrance. Never open my mouth through the whole show. <laughs> entrance in the first act. you stayed act, on for Entrance some time. in the second act. Open the third act doing a jitterbug. <gasps> no one even knew I was there. I, to me, it was outstanding. Of course it was. Special. Brought back by public demand in every yes, act. of course. The show lasted a hot two months, and that was the end of that. Uh, 15 bucks a week. And then I, and I went to the stage door canteen to be a hostess on Monday nights. Uh, that really sounds like another planet and another time. But, well, it it's was sad, another sad. time. What was the breakthrough? Was the model, was the, the cover? Modeling, photographic modeling. For Harper's Bazaar was the breakthrough. Uh, Diana Vreeland um, was then the editor of Harper's Bazaar, and, uh, or the fashion editor, and Nikki de Gansburg, who I think he was, he was the editor, I believe, at that time, uh, gave me my first chance. And Louise Dahlwolf took all the photographs of me, and, and, and I became kind of their pet, and they were marvelous. And, and there was one great cover, wasn't there? There was only one cover, period. There was one <laughs> yes, cover. ever. And Harper's Bazaar have you haven't? been to their files. David, you've done your homework. Oh, yes. <laughs> and there is that historic cover. The cover Dad pulls out from 1943 shows a young Bacall in a black jacket with black gloves. She stands in front of the door of a Red Cross medical office. The red in her hair, her lipstick, her handbag all pop off the page. She stares straight into the camera with confidence, a look that exudes an effortless nonchalance. There is the great Harper's Bazaar cover that started it all. It's terrific. I don't know who that lady is. It's a great shot, <laughs> and you still look great. Look at it. There it is. It's more than a great shot, it's a legendary shot, because a few weeks later, the cover would be spotted by Slim Hawks, the wife of filmmaker Howard Hawks, who you might know as the director of the original Scarface film. I must admit I wasn't aware Pacino's version wasn't the original until making this episode. That small moment would change the trajectory of Bacall's life. She'd been discovered. And Mrs. Howard Hawks, it was. Who Mrs. Howard Hawks, indeed. She, she showed this picture to Howard. Howard always was looking for new girls to... to um, I mean, he'd given many... He'd given Rita Hayworth her first good part in Only Angels Have Wings. So she said, here's a girl, Howard, you know. And he, he was going to make a film with either Bogey or Cary Grant. He wasn't sure which it was going wasn't to be. Wasn't sure which. And it was going to... 
uh, he wanted a new girl for it. And so he, Howard saw the photographs, that one and, uh, as well as some that were inside the magazine, and they said that my name, that I was an actress. And so I was sent for to test for it. This was my chance to maybe become an actress finally, you know, I thought. And I, I never wanted to be in movies. I only wanted to be in the theater. So the whole thing was kind of a, I guess, fate or what yeah. would you call it? Yes, fate. Fate and luck and opportunity, I suppose. Luck, we, yes, we timing that we have no control over, but very lucky, yes. And what's, what surprised you when, when you got out to Hollywood? I mean, it seemed unreal, presumably. And rather grand, you found it, didn't you? Oh, well, I found it, you know, I was on that train in a bedroom. I don't know if you remember what that was like, to be on a train crossing the country in a bedroom for a girl who was brought up on the west side with a family that had no money, you know, and suddenly be by yourself in a bedroom on a train going across country was so extraordinary. When I arrived there to the hotel, and I was to meet Howard Hawks for lunch the next day, we were going to the Brown Derby in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills was so attractive, I cannot tell you. No glass and brass, old buildings that have since been torn down, of course. All the charm of the place. Imagine a girl from New York coming into that. The whole way of life was so startlingly different and so wonderful. It was a fairy tale. Howard Hawks was impressed enough with the 18-year-old Bacall that he hired her for a seven-year contract. Without hesitation, he began grooming her career. He sent Bacall to a voice coach who helped her develop the sultry, smoky speaking voice that would help make her famous. Meanwhile, Hawks's wife, Slim, gave Bacall etiquette lessons. Most famously, Hawks told Bacall, whose first name was actually Betty, to change her stage name. Does anybody in private call you Lauren, in fact? Not if they know me. It, it's just a, <laughs> So in private, no, they don't. They don't? No. Where, where does it come from, then? It a actually, name that you never use, as it were? Exactly. It really was a, a figment of Howard Hawks's imagination, which is not a bad imagination, by the way, um, as he started me off on my questionable career. Uh, he thought that the name went better with Bacall than, than Betty, which is my actual name. And so... Uh, it was Lauren then, when I was 19, and that's the way it stayed. I, I, I think the two go well together, but Lauren, Lauren doesn't Bacall. really, yeah. it doesn't Lauren really suit Bacall. me, do you think? I mean, Lauren, it's not the... You're more a you Betty, think? you think? Well, I, th I think, I think, I think so. so. <laughs> I think so. You're certainly not a Wilhelmina, for instance. You're not a... No, no, I think Lauren Bacall. Yes, it sounds great. On the first day on the set of Hawks' 1944 film, To Have or Have Not, Bacall was excruciatingly nervous. Not only was it her first time on camera, it was also her first time working with one of the most famous actors in Hollywood, Humphrey Bogart. Was Humphrey Bogart, when you came to do that picture, was he as much of a legend then as he's been ever since? I mean, was it terrifying for you? I mean, when you'd never met him, I mean, or scarcely met him, were you very nervous? I mean, well, I was terribly, ner I was terribly nervous uh, just being in front of a camera. I mean, you know, just for acting, stars. I mean, just for openers. And as a matter of fact, that's, that's really how the look, I, became, I came to be called the look because right. out, of, out of sheer total hysteria, you know, I, 
the only way I could hold my head still was to go like this and look up. So I did that, and then they so the, suddenly labeled the look as a result of that, because otherwise I was standing in the scene <laughs> like that, and that certainly didn't work. The look Bacall is talking about, a coy upward glance at the camera, would become part of her signature style. But the truth is, it wasn't intentional. It was just Bacall's way of handling her nerves. The only other thing that seemed to put her at ease was, in fact, Humphrey Bogart himself. I mean, he himself certainly was, I mean, he couldn't have been easier. He was a, a, a very professional actor and, uh, and really wa wanted to help me. And he knew that I didn't know anything and I was just beginning. So he was invaluable. It wasn't long before a romance blossomed between the two actors. The relationship, however, was bumpy from the get-go. Bogart, after all, was married. Was it love at first sight? No, not at all. No, at first sight, well, at second sight, when we started to shoot, the first day of shooting, I came on the set. I did not work the first day of shooting. And Mayo Matho was on the set, glaring at me. Mayo Metho was Bogard's wife. Their relationship was already rocky. And I was introduced to her. I said, how do you do? And I was this kid. And I didn't know Bogie at all. And she was, you know, I, because she was jealous of everyone. She was convinced he was having an affair with everyone he ever worked with. He would have been so busy, wouldn't have had time for anything else. But um, it just was very gradual. And I have, I cannot honestly tell you, I don't know what I felt when. It just seemed to evolve of its own accord. And Bogey made the first move. I certainly didn't. I was always taught you don't go near married men, you know. Never chase a man, your mother said. Never chase a man. If he wants to see you, he will. She was so much smarter than I ever realized. <laughs> she was so much smarter. But he made the first move at the end of the day after three or four weeks? Or? After three or four weeks, uh, well, he had been so helpful to me because he knew how nervous I was. He could see me shaking and he knew that I was terrified. And so he used to kid around with me on the set. And, you know, I am a kidder and I love to laugh. And so the humor, our humor seemed to match one another. And so we just had a lot of fun together. And he made me relax a little bit, never entirely, but a little bit. And so it was a game. And he did that to put me at my ease. And somehow, I guess he became emotionally involved because, um, Three or four weeks after we started to shoot, I was sitting in my dressing room. And I was sitting at the dressing table and there was somebody else in the room and I forget who was in the room, maybe the assistant director or something. And Bogie walked in the room to say goodnight and he stood behind me and he lifted my head up and he bent over and he kissed me. The whole thing was a game. We had, it was the best time, I mean, it was the most romantic, I don't even know whether you would call it courtship, but it was amazing. It was just like two children. And he was 45 years old. And it was like kid stuff. I mean, I mean there was no sex, really. It was not, no, no affairs. Where, where on the, in my apartment or, or his? No. Not for a long so time. So doing it took a long time, as I say. It took quite a while, and he was not happy about that because he didn't like... This, he didn't like this. Bo, he was a prude, actually. He did not like the sense of going behind closed doors or, you know, sneaking around or any of that. 
uh, he was a grown-up, and he taught me a, really a lot. And so it took, yeah, it took, before we hit the sack, it took a while, and it was in somebody else's trailer. Friends of his who lived in a trailer park. Really? So trailer parks have a special place in your life? Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> but they sure did at the time. In the space of just a few months, Bacall's life had changed forever. From an unknown model with very little acting experience, she just made a hit movie with the most famous actor in America and fallen in love with him in the process. But Bacall's rapid rise to stardom wasn't without problems, namely a simmering resentment from Howard Hawks, the director who'd been determined to control the young actor's career and felt it slipping away. The minute he knew that I was going off with Bogey, that it was a, a done deal. Howard knew that his control was not going to be what he had intended. The thing was that he obviously wanted to be your Svengali. Oh, definitely, absolutely. And was that as a sort of father-daughter relationship or something? Oh, more? I think he would have liked uh, a little other, little apple pan dowdy thrown in there. <laughs> I, think he w I think he definitely would have liked that. Yeah. I know one of the writers, Jules Firthman, who was a very good writer, who, who was involved with him on both movies that I was involved in, came up to me one day and he said, uh, why don't you ever call Howard sometime? He'd like to see you, I know. I thought, oh. I said, oh, yes, well, maybe, you know. I was, I was so frightened of Howard Hawks anyway. Howard Hawks was a very imposing and threatening figure. Fabulous director, wonderful director. And he let, you know, he dropped my contract, so I think it was mainly because of the control factor, actually. I guess I have to blame Bogart for the wrecking of my career. <laughs> because uh, Howard really did want to, he wanted me to be his concubine. Yeah. He wanted to own me. And you know that's not possible anyway. Hawke still lauded significant influence over the direction of Bacall's career. This was the 1940s. Hollywood stars were not free agents. They couldn't move from movie studio to movie studio. In Bacall's case, she was stuck with Hawks at Warner Brothers for at least six more years. She knew she had to be careful. Technically, since Bacall had signed a contract with Warner Brothers, she had no say in what roles she performed but she refused to be pushed around, especially when she felt the role was wrong for her. It was a skill she learnt from Bogart, who she married in 1945 at the age of 20. You mentioned just now about how uh, his tremendous sense of principle in choosing roles, and indeed something that you emulated, because you almost had a competition between you on which of you would have most suspensions and hassles with studios, really. I mean, where you thought the material was trashy and so on, didn't you? I mean, you turned yes. down lots of things. A quick aside, the suspensions Dad talks about were the studio's way of disciplining actors. Bacall got to know the tactic well. Oh, I did, yes. I, I spent most of my years with Warner Brothers on suspension because I, I, I <laughs> well, I was fortunate in that I had someone who could support me. But um, I really was offered, I, I mean, after my, the second film that I was in, which was so disastrous, which I decided, was that? Which was that? Confidential Agent with Charles Boyer, who was marvelous. But it was a bad film, and I was just terrible in it, and got no help at all. And I, I decided then that Jack Warner had chosen for me for the first and last time. And 
that I had nobody that I could turn to for, you know, to kind of take care of me while I was learning my profession. So I was on suspension all the time because Jack Warner's theory at that time was, well, we use the actors, you know, we put them into anything because uh, while they're hot, we use them and uh, it doesn't matter if it's sensational or not sensational, a great part for them or not, we'll use them. But um, I, I felt for my own protection, I had to go on suspension because that it was worse to be seen in something terrible than not to be seen at all. Although I knew and Bogey's feeling always was, actors must act. You cannot sit back in your living room and say, I'm marvelous and talented and brilliant and never do anything. You've got to do it. Yeah. And that's the only way you learn and that's the only way you're seen. Otherwise, you're forgotten, which indeed is absolutely true. Was then, is now, will be tomorrow. As Bacall would attest, there were benefits to marrying one of the most iconic actors in America. And you said he taught you so much. What most of all? Well, he taught me everything about movies, really. I mean, he taught me that uh, not to believe my own publicity. He said, you must always remember when you see your name in print that somebody else has put it there. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, studio, you know. And um, that you must remember that your life, your private life, must be separated from your work life. And that nobody really cares about what happens to our private lives. No, no one in the studio gives a damn whether you stay married or you don't stay married. They only care about your, what happens with the work, if you sell tickets or you don't sell tickets. He made that all patently clear to me, that at 6 o'clock when you come home, you are home then. You do not think about the work. And you never, never yield to temptation. You know, we work with attractive people all the time. There are actors and actresses that have affairs with everyone they work with. Uh, and that you must remember that your life, your home life is much more important than that. Well, How many times did you get suspended? 12? I think it was, yeah, 11 or 12. I broke the record. However, it's clear that breaking the record for suspensions didn't ultimately hurt Bacall's career. She appeared in runaway hits like How to Marry a Millionaire and was acting alongside stars like Doris Day and Kirk Douglas. It wasn't getting in the way of her home life either. She and Bogart would have two children in 1949 and 1952. But little did she know the life she was building at home was about to collapse when Bogart, only in his 50s, became ill. When it started, the whole the tragedy of the cancer, when you went with, with the first time to the hospital, did you, did you know what was in store? This was the... No. Not at all. We were supposed to start a movie. And the doctor said... Uh, we said, well, can we start it and can we have the surgery afterwards? And the doctor said, no, you have to do it now. Can't wait three months. But you know, if you've never had it, you don't understand what it means. I'd never been in a hospital except to give birth to the children. Bogey hadn't either. So I remember in the car heading downtown to the hospital. Bogey said, you know, I've, I've never gone to doctors, and now I'll probably spend the rest of my life going to doctors. So somewhere he might have thought something but I didn't have a clue. Because from that day on, 
Bogey never talked about it, about imminent death or anything. And that was about 11 months the battle went on, wasn't it? The battle went on. He was operated on the beginning of February, early, and he died mid-January the following year. With the death of Humphrey Bogart in 1957, at the age of 57, Bacall was suddenly a single parent, and for years she struggled to find balance. How long do you think it took you to come to terms with the death of Bogey, find equilibrium again? Well, I was able to function, but I certainly didn't do anything right. I made nothing but mistakes. So I think it took me, David Niven, who was a very close friend, I think explained it to me better than anyone. He had lost his wife. David said to me, he said, you know, there's nothing you can do about the way you feel. It, takes, it all takes time. He said, every day you get a minuscule bit better, feeling just a tiny, tiny better. Then maybe after six months, you fall on your ass for no reason, no accountable reason. But he said, you know, eventually, and it does take time, it's as though you had a painting on a wall that had always been on the wall for 20 years, say. And you never, never lose or get rid of that painting when you just are able to move it to another wall. Now, that's a great explanation, isn't it? In the 1960s, Bacall remarried, though it was ultimately short-lived, ending in divorce in 1969. And that decade, her productivity and pace slowed as she appeared in fewer and fewer films. Part of the reason was grief, another, her growing family. But above all, she was trying to return to her original dreams of becoming a Broadway actor. But as she returned to old dreams, old ghosts appeared. You came back here to Broadway, and first of all, there was Cactus Flower. And during Cactus Flower, uh, your father, who you hadn't seen since you were eight, and uh, there had been those newspaper articles he'd done, but uh, interviews, uh, but tried to get free tickets to come and see you in Cactus Flower. And one night you thought you, you in possibly... In Washington. And he called me at the hotel. So frightening. Did you speak to him? Yes, because I didn't know it was him. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and he'd always announce him, this is your father. And he wanted to see me, and I said, it's too late. I knew it would upset my mother, and I didn't want to upset her. If you go through your whole life, and you see that a parent doesn't give a damn about you, until suddenly you're famous, and then he starts making statements, giving his opinions about how you should live your life, why should I suddenly, just because he's decided now I'm worth seeing? I thought, no, the hell with that. With her return to the stage, Bacall's convictions were stronger than ever, not just personally, but politically too. She would spend the rest of her life advocating for liberal causes and politicians, one of whom had been Bobby Kennedy, someone Dad had huge respect for too, carrying out one of the final interviews he gave before his assassination in June of 1968. I feel that... In America, and I am, I am, I mean, I am as much a victim as anyone else, 
we have somehow been schooled to stars, whether they are political stars or any other kind, and that it is a person that we look for to kind of guide us or lead us or show us the way or, you know, give us some sense of hope. Uh, and I suppose it's basically wrong to put that burden on the shoulders of one man. You see, I think Bobby changed my thinking a great deal because I saw his capacity for change uh, within himself. And I mean, I felt that his potential was enormous. And when he was assassinated, my instinct was to get out. I thought, yeah. I don't want to be in this country anymore. What can I, I looked at my Sam, who was then six years old, and I realized that for most of his life, the things he could remember most vividly on television were three, four day or five day funerals, beginning with John Kennedy, and then Martin Luther King, and then Bobby. And I remember thinking of Bobby, and funnily enough, it was uh, the, the interview, the last interview, I think, that Bobby gave on television, I think it was with you. I think you were yeah. following him. Uh, yes, in Oregon. That in was, Oregon. That was an unfegettable evening for me. Well, he was so extraordinary on that. And you, you did it so beautifully because the camera stayed with him and watched him as he was thinking. And I mean, all of the processes that were going on within him and all of his conflicts. And I remember his saying, I, I remember you said, if there was one thing that you would like to be remembered for, what would it be? How would you like to be remembered? I mean, uh, in, what would you like the first line of a history book about Robert Kennedy to say? I think something about the fact that he I made some contribution to, uh, uh, you know, my country or... Uh, or those who were less well off. I think, again, back to uh, uh, what Camus wrote about the fact that uh, perhaps this world is a world of which children suffer, but we can lessen the number of suffering children. And if you do not do this, then who will do this? And I'd like to feel that I'd done something to lessen that suffering. And I thought of all he had been through in his life. And I must say, those things that he said really kept me from just shoving off. I mean, not that the country would, is any the better for my being here, but it is, I mean, I personally was so affected by that. I mean, which shows the, the degree that someone in political life can yes. affect you. And can inspire. And can, oh, so it was just, I mean, I get the chills. The thing said about growth and it. potential. Oh. I can see that. That was the only night I met him, and it was three unforgettable hours. Oh, really? and that film, I mean, that you must never let anything happen to that, because no, that's I wouldn't to be treasured. You can hear more from that Bobby Kennedy interview in episode one of the first season of The Frost Tapes. While maintaining a keen interest in politics throughout her life, Bacall's professional focus was, of course, always acting and the 70s would usher in great success on stage, and as she performed in more and more theatres across the globe, she would eventually reprise a role played by her childhood hero, Betty Davis. And then, of course, in 1970, you always wanted to play the palace. You played the palace right here in this theatre. Applause, applause, how fabulous. And that was just a fantastic experience. Your first musical. Really. First musical, my dream to be in a musical. God, it was so great. It was so wonderful. 
It was the most perfect theatrical experience I guess I've ever had because everything worked. And the first night, tell me about the, the first, first night. And the first night, nerves, we won't even discuss my nerves. But the first night was so thrilling, I cannot explain it. Ron Field had, he had choreographed a curtain call in such a way that it was the high point. As high as the show went, it took me higher. Because what happened was that everyone came out and took their calls. And then he had, had them all form in a V. And I was standing all the way upstage at the top of the V with my back to the audience. And at the certain point in the song, in the music, when they were singing applause, I turned around, swiveled around, raised my arms. And the whole audience went, Way! It was such a, an exciting, and me. And then I walked on stage and I was like grazed. Such a high as you couldn't possibly have, no matter what drug you took. Exactly. <laughs> Better than any drug. Better than any drug, better than all the drugs, better than anything. But after the show, you adjourned to Saudis to await the review. Adjourned to Saudis. And that was when, when you walked into Saudis, but the tradition is that at an opening night, you go into Saudis and everyone there is, is there before you and they all applaud you. And then you wait for the awful word from the New York Times. Dad's 2000 biopic on Bacall was recorded over three sessions in various different meaningful locations to her, including the legendary Sardi's restaurant in the heart of Broadway. Well, now, here we are at Sardi's, obviously. The show has been fantastic. The, as you just described so eloquently, the curtain call. Then you come here to wait for the reviews. How long did you have to wait? I don't know. It seemed interminable, of course, but we had to wait, I think. Well, close to an hour, I guess, 45 minutes, something like that. Because by the time you get out of the theater, you know, all the well-wishers backstage, you know, that taking bows again and everything, all that great time. And uh, then they, I think one of the producers stood up and read the review aloud. And I must say, one could not have asked for anything more. Walter Kerr gave a great review to the show, great personal review. At last, he said, I have found my place in the theater, which was the nicest thing that could possibly have been said to me. I was not just a Hollywood star coming to Broadway. I belonged on Broadway, and that meant everything to me. Over the course of the show's run, Bacall's life came back full circle. After the performance, she received a visit from a special admirer. At the end of the show, there was a knock on the door, and there she was. I almost fainted, you know. I, I would have... I would have fainted if I had known. I would never have gotten through the show if I'd known she would have been out there. That she was Betty Davis, the same woman Bacall had visited as an aspiring actor when just a little girl. And of course I said, oh, you know, well, we had met before, you know, and I said, oh, of course, you know, there's only one Margot Channing, and you know who that is, that's you. But this is a musical, and it's a different version, a different point of view, and... I hope you don't mind, and I was using all the superlatives, you were the best and the greatest, and my heroine and all the rest. 
And she was no help, you know. Really? No, she didn't say, oh, go on with it, you know, no, no. But she did say when she was leaving, I, I offered her a drink, and she said, nobody could have done this but you, and you know I mean that. That was all she said when she left. By the end of her career, Bacall had done it all. Two Tony Awards on stage, a Golden Globe Award on screen, and later was awarded three Lifetime Achievement Awards by the Critics' Choice, the Globes, and the Oscars. In 2000, Dad reflected with her on the profession of acting overall. I think the acting profession is wonderful. I think it is. I admire actors. I think we lay our lives on the line eight times a week in the theater. And I think it's exciting and it's, uh, it's the one thing that happens each night in one way that will never quite be the same the next night. And so I find that very exciting and unique. I don't think you're ever prepared for the downside of it. And there's always a downside because there's nothing convenient about this profession. I mean, it, you cannot have any other life, really, because you, your life begins at the end of the show. And all day you prepare for it. And what about the future? What, what challenges do you expect in the future? What ambitions to fulfill? Staying alive. <laughs> That's number one ambition. Um, no, I'd like to be productive. I'd like to continue to be productive and be able to work. I mean, I would, I would certainly like to think that I have a future. I feel that I have. I don't think about it a hell of a lot. I don't, it doesn't prey on my mind. And do you, do, you believe in a, do you believe in an afterlife where you'll meet Bogey again? I'd love to believe in it, but I really don't. No, I, I, I don't know. I just, I guess I'm too much of a realist. I don't, I think it's a lovely idea, but I mean, who knows? I won't be around to tell you what it's like. <laughs> we'll never know <laughs> no, till we get we'll there. we'll never know till we get there. I think somehow your energy remains. And I also think you live through other people. I mean, Bogey is a bigger star now than he's ever been. And he lives, I mean, I, in a way, have become part of him because I learned so much from him that, I mean, my attitude about things is very much the same as his was. And then I think in, in experiences that, you, that you've had and phrases that you have heard and, th you know, things that you relate to, that's the way people live on. In an earlier episode, we heard Dad discuss with Sammy Davis Jr., what the definition of a star was. One answer could be simply Lauren Bacall. In the next episode of The Frost Tapes, the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali. Ever since I won the gold medal in Rome, went back to Louisville, Kentucky, and was denied a beef burger downtown. And I was the champion of the whole world, just fought for the great American flag. And in my own little country, one horse town, I couldn't even get a beef burger. I didn't know what was wrong, but it wasn't right. The Frost Tapes is a production of Paradine Productions and Chalk and Blade. Executive producers are Wilfred Frost, George Frost, Laura Sheeter, Ruth Barnes, and Nigel Sinclair. 
Produced by Lily Ames, Rosie Stouffer and Matt Nielsen. Written by Lucas Riley and Wilfred Frost. Sound design and mixing by Alex Portfelix and Matt Nielsen. Music composed by Pascal Wise. With special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions, to Whitehorse Productions, to A&E Television Networks and to Marty Mitchell. 